Hello, I'm R.A. Spratt. I write and perform this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, I'm a children's author, so you can buy a book by me, or you can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. It's an easy way to make a small thank you gift to the show so I can keep kicking this can down the road. The podcast directory you're using right now should have a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page in the show notes, or you can type it into your browser. That's buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. All contributions are gratefully appreciated. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories with me, R.A. Spratt. Okay, so we're reading one of my books, The Pesky Kids 4, Near Extinction, and we're up to Chapter 18, Jurassic Car Park. Here we go. It was getting to be late in the afternoon. The cliché is true. In the desert, it can be blisteringly hot by day, but at night, the temperature will drop like a stone. There was already a chill in the air, and no one was dressed for that type of weather. The kids were starting to get cold. Mr Lang had tried using the bus's radio to call for help, but he'd had no luck. The radio was powered by the bus's battery, and that was as flat as a pancake. The students had spent half an hour trying to get their mobile phones to work, but they were too far from anywhere to get reception. It'll be another hour before we're expected back, said Mr Lang glumly. Two hours before people start to worry enough to come and look for us. Then four hours before they arrive, by which time it'll be pitch black. And freezing cold, complained Daisy. We should be huddling together to share body warmth. She looked meaningfully up at Joe, but he was too busy holding on to Finn to come down and share body heat. Daisy wished Finn's head had been ripped off, then she could hold Joe tight and comfort him. But the night was young. She hadn't given up hope that the dinosaur would slip and Finn might still be decapitated. "'I'll light a fire,' said Loretta happily. "'With what?' said Mr Lang. "'I hope you didn't bring matches or a lighter on a school excursion.' "'No, of course not,' said Loretta. "'That would be wrong. It's dangerous to play with matches. "'But I did bring a butane torch.' "'A butane torch,' said April.' Well, Joe packed salmon sandwiches for our lunches, said Loretta. I adore seared salmon. April glared at her. It was so ridiculous, it might not be a lie. You never could tell with Loretta. But what would you set fire to, asked April. There was scrub and some tufts of grass, but not much in the way of timber. I was thinking the school excursion handouts would be a good start, said Loretta. Several students cheered with joy. Soon everyone was thrusting their half-finished paperwork to Loretta, and she was merrily roasting them all with her mini flamethrower. Now toss on anything else you think might burn. The picnic table, suggested Kieran. You can't burn the picnic table, protested Mr Lang. Of course we can, said Loretta. The lives of children are at stake. It's not that cold, said Mr Lang. Oh, who's going to notice if this picnic table's gone, asked April. She kicked the bench hard and a plank snapped off. If it breaks that easily, it isn't safe. So really, we should burn it for occupational health and safety reasons. Mr Lang started to protest, but the students were bored and everyone loves a good fire. They were soon all stomping on it to break bits off and add to the campfire. Don't worry, Mr Lang, said Loretta. This is all very educational. We're learning survival skills. Ugh. I would hate to live in a post-apocalyptic dystopia with you lot, said Mr Lang glumly. Well, that won't be a problem, said April. If it comes to that, the old people are always the first to die. I'm only 43, said Mr Lang. 
post-apocalyptic hordes aren't going to ask to see your birth certificate, said April. And that is the end of the chapter. But let's push on. Chapter 19, On the Inside. Oh, so just so you remember, I don't want you to get confused. In this book, we cut back and forth between the two storylines. So I just read to you from the storyline of the excursion, but now we're going to cut to the other storyline with Dad and Ingrid in the prison. Here we go. On the Inside. Dad marched Ingrid down a long white corridor. Their steps sounded overly loud as they echoed off the linoleum floor and concrete walls. He was so nervous he wanted to be sick. There were cameras at regular intervals along the middle of the ceiling. Their every move was being watched. Ingrid jangled with every step. Her hands were cuffed together, and so were her feet, with a chain running in between. She could only take short, shuffling steps. Dad would have felt better if they could run down the corridor, preferably while screaming at the top of their lungs. They reached a steel gate. Dad could see a guard's office behind bulletproof glass off to the side. There were two guards inside, a man and a woman. Beyond the office was another steel gate that opened into a further corridor and the main part of the prison. "'Show your card to the reader,' said the guard, leaning into the microphone. He was speaking in Russian, but again, Dad miraculously understood every word. There was a key card on an extendable chain attached to Dad's belt. He pulled it and held it in front of the reader. There was a buzzing noise and the lock on the gate clicked open. Dad and Ingrid stepped through. The gate automatically shut behind them. They were trapped between the two gates now. If they messed this up, they were never leaving. The first guard stepped out of the office into the corridor. He gestured for Ingrid to hold up her elbows so he could search her. She was wearing a pocketless prison jumpsuit, so there was nowhere she could hide anything, but presumably this was procedure. He patted her down quickly. Dad glanced at Ingrid. He wasn't sure what she was going to do. Was she going to overpower the guard? The guard bent down to check her socks and shoes. If she was going to do it, surely this would be the time. But Ingrid didn't move. The guard stepped back and nodded to his comrade on the other side of the glass. There was a buzzing noise and the second gate opened. Dad took Ingrid by the elbow and took a step forward. But Ingrid didn't move. The guard was stepping back into his office. She spoke out to him in Russian, saying, Do you prefer vanilla or strawberry milkshakes? The guard hesitated, puzzled by the bizarre random question. In that split second, Ingrid became a blur of fluid movement. She headbutted the guard so hard he collapsed backwards. Then she was walking over the top of him before his back had even hit the ground. The other guard was surprised. It took a second for her to react and reach for the panic button. But Ingrid had leapt up and kicked out with both her feet together, slamming the guard into the wall. The female guard struggled to get up and reach for the control panel, but Ingrid was behind her. She reached around with her arm and put the guard in a chokehold. The guard blacked out in seconds. Quick, uncuff me, said Ingrid. Dad pulled out his handcuff key, but his hands were shaking so hard he could barely hold it. Ingrid snatched it out of his hand and did the job herself. Dad looked at the two unconscious guards. This was bad, very bad. Help me get her clothes off, said Ingrid. Dad noticed that Ingrid had stripped down to her underwear and was now peeling the clothes off the unconscious lady guard. This was all too much. Dad fainted. When Dad woke up, he was drowning. At least that's what he thought at first, until he realised that Ingrid was just tipping water on his face. She was fully dressed as a guard now. Some part of Dad's brain registered that the uniform suited her, although he suspected that all clothes suited Ingrid. Get up, we only have three minutes before the next watch starts, Ingrid said as she grabbed his arm and hauled him to his feet. Ingrid hit a button and the far gate opened. Dad followed her through to the main part of the prison. There were two long corridors, one to the right and one to the left. 
This will be quicker if we split up, Ingrid whispered. She set off down the right-hand corridor, stopping at the first cell and sliding the viewing hatch to the side before jogging to the next one. Dad turned and mimicked her, heading down the left-hand corridor. When he threw open the viewing hatch on the first cell, he was worried if he would recognise his wife. But he needn't have been. The first cell housed a very overweight man of African appearance. Dad knew his wife was a master of disguise, but she wasn't that good. The second cell had a short, thin man who appeared to be from the Middle East. The third held a man of Asian appearance. Perhaps they were on the wrong wing. There seemed to be no women here. Just then, a deafening alarm started blasting from speakers everywhere. That had been much less than three minutes. Something had gone wrong. Dad could hear security gates slamming shut around the prison. He could hear guards yelling in Russian somewhere in the distance. There is an intruder! Lock down! Lock down now! Dad kept running, checking the cells as quickly as he could. He'd never be able to fight his way out alone, but if there was one person who could get them out, it was his wife. She was capable of anything. He had to find her. There were only three cells left in the corridor. Dad ran to the first. She wasn't there. Suddenly, the yelling grew louder and angrier. Dad could hear a fight, hasty footfall, the sound of blows, and then the voice he'd come to know well. It was Ingrid, yelling in Russian, but with her distinctive Scandinavian lilt. Let go of me! Don't touch me! Dad threw open the viewing hatch at the last cell. It was another man. His wife was not here. There was the sound of footfall at the end of the corridor. Someone was coming his way. Dad couldn't go back the way he came, but there was no doorway out this end. There was, however, a hatch. Dad grabbed the handle and pulled it open. It disappeared into the darkness, but there was something familiar about the smell. Detergent. It must be the laundry chute. The footfall was getting closer. Dad didn't even think. He dived headfirst into the chute. The experience was horrifying, like flying down an incredibly steep slippery dip in complete darkness. It was a long drop. Then suddenly, slam! Dad had landed headfirst in a big pile of dirty, sweaty laundry. He wasn't dead. He had never been so relieved. The sound of the alarms and yelling was distant now. Dad was not a naturally brave man. He wasn't even the type of man who found unexpected depths of courage in moments of desperate need. He had been psychologically devastated 11 years ago. He had been broken. He was a coward all the way through to his backbone. So on finding himself in a maximum security prison in lockdown, Dad followed his natural instinct. He crawled into a bin full of dirty laundry and hid. Okay, well, let's just keep going. That's the end of that chapter, but now chapter 20. The Desert at Night. It wasn't that late, but it was pitch black, aside from the roaring fire as the picnic table burned. After a full day of near-death experiences, the adrenaline had drained out of all the students, and most of them had drifted off to sleep, Joe included. He was sitting on top of the bus with Finn. They'd pulled a seat out of the bus to let Finn sit down, so even Finn had fallen asleep with his head still trapped. Joe was dreaming that he was being pecked at by a bird a very needy seagull that wanted a chip. Suddenly, the seagull slapped him hard across the face. Joe woke up with a start. It wasn't a seagull. It was Loretta. She had climbed up to talk to him. What is it? asked Joe. His first thought was, April, had she started another fight or destroyed some more property? I can hear something, said Loretta. Joe listened. He could hear something too, a distant rumble. I think it's a car, said Loretta. It must be the rescuer, said Joe. He went over to the side of the bus to call to Mr. Lang, but Mr. Lang was already on his feet. Someone's finally come to help, said Mr. Lang. Thank goodness. I don't get paid enough to deal with this sort of thing. The sound of the car carried in the stillness of the desert. 
was still a long way away. Joe and Loretta waited on top of the bus, while Mr Lang stood just below them on the ground. They all peered into the darkness for the first sign of the vehicle. They were not entirely sure which way to look. Joe was the tallest and standing on top of the bus, so he spotted it first. Over there! I can see headlights! Two yellow globes flickered in the distance as the car judded towards them along the dirt road. Mr Lang straightened his clothes, smoothed down his hair, and started making his way up the embankment to the car park. He wanted to make a good first impression on the rescuers. Getting stuck in the middle of the desert with fifty teenagers was not a good look. He didn't want his clothes to look scruffy as well. Eventually, the vehicle swung into the car park. Oh, it's just a car, said Loretta. I was expecting a police rescue vehicle, or at least a mechanic with a ute full of tools. The beaten-up old sedan pulled up under the street lamp. Isn't that the car that nearly ran us off the road this morning, asked Joe. I think you're right, said Loretta. Loretta and Joe were curious, so they climbed down from the bus to go and see. The doors of the old sedan opened. A man and a woman got out. There was no doubt in it now. There was not a lot of diversity in Currawong. Don't misunderstand, there were plenty of people of different ethnicities, but there were no other women with bright pink hair, and no men with that many tattoos. They were a tall couple. The man was brawny as well. They each carried a toolbox. Hello, called Mr Lang. We're so relieved to see you. My name's Horatio Lang. Loretta stifled a snigger. She nudged Joe in the ribs and mouthed, Horatio. Her eyes were sparkling with delight. Mr Lang held out his hand to shake the pink-haired woman's. Georgia, she said. Mr Lang stared for a moment. Do I know you? You look familiar. Georgia looked uncomfortable. No, she said. You are mechanics, aren't you? asked Mr Lang. Yes, agreed Georgia. The man stepped forward to stand by Georgia. Mr Lang peered at him. It was hard to see. The only light was from the street lamp behind him. Oh, I don't think I know you either, Mr Lang chuckled nervously. It's pretty uncommon when you're a high school teacher in a country town for 20 years to bump into anyone under the age of 40 that you don't know. This is Bruce. We're not from Karawong, said Georgia. Bruce grunted. It seemed to be a sign of agreement, but it was hard to be sure. Oh, thank goodness, said Mr Lang, laughing. In Currawong, we know how to make a good pie and how to throw a daffodil festival, but for some reason, we've never had a good mechanic. Come on, you better have a look. Mr Lang turned and led Georgia and Bruce towards the bus. So Constable Pike sent you, asked Mr Lang. I'm surprised he didn't come himself. But I remember he didn't do well in shop class. It's much better that he sent someone who could help with the bus engine. Did you bring tools? The starter motor is completely shot. Sure, said Bruce. Let's have a look at it. Then we'll see what we can do. Georgia turned on a powerful hand torch and pointed it out across the park. It lit up the bus with the dinosaur collapsed across the roof. Well, I think we can see the problem, said Georgia. You've got a T-Rex stuck on your bus. Yes, I know, said Mr Lang, a little testily. We would try and reverse the bus out, but we can't get it started. We'll see, said Bruce. I'm sure we'll figure something out. I don't know much about engines, admitted Mr Lang. We'll have it fixed in a jiffy, said Georgia. Why don't you go and sit by the fire? Keep an eye on the kids. There's no need for you to stand and watch and get cold. I'll get some more tools, said Bruce, going back to the car. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, said Mr Lang, retreating back to the warmth of the glowing embers. Well, that's the end of chapter 20, but these are short chapters today, so let's push on and read chapter 21, Exit Strategy. It was very quiet in the laundry. The sirens in the distance had been turned off. There were no footsteps or angry voices. Dad was alone at the bottom of the massive laundry hamper. It smelled gross in there, of sweat and worse things. 
He had to get out of the hamper, and preferably out of the prison. Dad swung his leg over the edge and tried to vault sideways out of the basket. But he was not a coordinated man. He ended up falling on the ground on all fours. He paused for a moment, praying that no one had heard. But there was no sound. He hurried to the door and looked out into the corridor. He'd entered the building on the ground floor, then fallen a long way down in the laundry chute. He must be several floors below ground level now. He needed to find a staircase and make his way back up to the floor with the main exit. Without Ingrid's help, he was going to struggle. He needed to find someone who knew what they were doing. Dad tiptoed down the dark corridor. The fluorescent lights had changed from blinding white to black lights. No doubt so the prisoners couldn't see properly if they were trying to break out. Only the guards with special visors would know what was going on. At the end of the corridor, Dad turned into another passage with a staircase leading up. He started to jog towards it. He could hear an industrial rumbling sound from the other side of the wall. Presumably the generator was housed down here. The prison couldn't be on mains power. That would be too easy to cut off from outside. Dad was just 20 metres from the staircase when he noticed a viewing window. He skidded to a halt. If there was someone on the other side, they'd be able to see him. Then Dad remembered he was dressed as a prison guard. Hiding would be much more suspicious than boldly walking past it. He strode forward towards the staircase, trying to look calm. As he walked past, he glanced through the window for a fraction of a second. But what he saw made him freeze. The viewing window looked out on a small courtyard. There were high walls on four sides and an oval running track painted on the ground. Two bored guards were watching a prisoner exercise. A woman prisoner. She stopped doing sit-ups, leapt up, grabbed the bars shielding a window and started doing pull-ups. She was incredibly fit and strong. She was wearing prison overalls, but the top half were tied around her waist, and she was just wearing a grey singlet. Dad could see her muscles rippling. He didn't even realise what he was doing, but he was counting her pull-ups. Twelve, thirteen, fourteen. When would she stop? Fifteen. She dropped down and started doing star jumps. Dad could see her face now. He gasped. It was the woman from his dreams and his nightmares. It was Mum. All right, now that is a good place to stop, so we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>